Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. In fact, we thank you for joining us because, Natalie, you and I both know people have choice, and we're very grateful when they choose to spend some time listening to us. And in the studio with us is The Times' chief statistician, Bill Edgar. Hello, Gab, and hello, Natalie. Hello. Down the line, we're delighted to have the chief football writer at The Times, Henry Winter. Hi, Gab. Hi, Matt. Hi, Bill. Hello, hello. Uh, and later on, we're going to be joined by Matt Dickinson, the Times Chief Sports Writer. Uh, we're going to be discussing the Kevin Keegan book that has got everyone talking on Timeside. But we start with Chelsea, who missed the chance to go level at the top of the table by drawing nil-nil at West Ham on Sunday. It's the first time the Blues have dropped points under Maurizio Sarri. Uh, Henry, you were at the London Stadium. What did you make of the performance? Well, it's one of those games when you're actually quite relieved. You're quite a long way back from the pitch because there wasn't actually too much to, to, to watch and enjoy. But so bumping into one or two of the Chelsea fans coming out the ground, the, the debate was more, you know, they're obviously huge fans of Sarri. He's done brilliantly. And he's now come out and said that, look, we're a year behind Liverpool in terms of development, which is an interesting comment coming into the, the, the two games they've got coming up against. But, you know, there's debates about sort of little things in the team, like are they too heavily reliant on Hazard for goals? Yes, definitely. Uh, and also this pushing Kante into this more advanced position um, doesn't seem to completely to be bringing the best out of a player who won a title deeper with, with Leicester and Chelsea. The, the sort of the stock explanation that they would give you is that in this system, because you've got three men in midfield, two of them are basically runners who go back and forth, and the guy at the back of the three has to be somebody who, who can pass the ball 180 times a, a, a game, like Jorginho. In other words, it's something Conte cannot do. But because Conte's so good, you find another role for him on the pitch. Are, are you buying that? I mean, is that basically the, 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 the dynamic here? I'm not completely buying it, Gab. No, um, I think that this is not a, a Jorginho versus Conte debate. I completely accept your point about Jorginho has been playing all these fantastic uh, passes. One of them yesterday, Giroud sort of scored one. It was, it, was a, it was a brilliant delivery. And, you know, he's the metronome in deep midfield who keeps moves ticking over. I understand that. But the Conte should be going around. He's just a one-man swarm winning the ball and then maybe giving it to Jorginho or playing it out left to Hazard. So, the issue for me is more uh, Kovacic. Look, he was a good player. He's been bought in. Sarri obviously likes him. I actually thought that uh, um, Chelsea were far more impressive when Ross Barkley 
uh, came through and leaving aside any sort of desire for English players to do well, which inherently you have to, um, you just I just thought Chelsea just had a little bit more invention, a little bit more balance in, in midfield when he was sort of pushing on. So I feel slightly sorry for Kanzi because we know he's the most selfless person probably on the planet, let alone on planet football. And he will do anything for the team because he's so modest. But I don't think it brings the best out of him. And I think he is better off deeper, maybe alongside Jorginho, and then someone like Barkley pushing on. But that's not to decry Kovacic, who's, who's, who's a good player. But I just think... To get the balance is not quite right in that central three. Yeah, I agree with Kovacic. He's, he's not enough of a creative player, I think, when you've got Kante and uh, Jorginho there as well. It, it really comes all down to Hazard's uh, dribbling and Willian, or Willian's dribbling or Pedro's running off the ball. I mean, those players are great creatively, but it's, all, it's relying on them a lot. I thought Chelsea missed Pedro because he was injured. So, you know, he's, he's been a, an excellent player this season for them. I'm slightly surprised that they played such a strong team in, uh, in the Europa League on Thursday um, because their group is so easy. They could really get through comfortably with a full reserve team. So I think they perhaps paid a little for that. And obviously the finishing is a problem with Giroud and Morata. They've never been prolific in their careers, but they're in a period of gold routes, really. Um, Giroud was very good in the World Cup, but he didn't score in the seven games. Morata is even struggling for general form. Um, So they're certainly missing uh, Diego Costa's finishing ability. Um, Overall, uh, I I think perhaps people have been a bit harsh on Chelsea. I did feel they created enough yesterday to perhaps just got the win. So I wouldn't be too worried about uh, a fall-off just yet. If I can provide a little bit of context to uh, Sari and kind of the mindset here. Uh, One of the odd things is that his teams have always been really high scorers. I think in the three years he was at Napoli, they were always over or, or, or close to 100 goals a season uh, in all competitions. One of the things that they ran into, and this might explain why he played a stronger team in the Europa League, is that last season he did this thing where in the, I think it was the second game of the Champions League, if you recall they were in a group with Manchester City and Shakhtar Donetsk, he made a whole bunch of changes away to Shakhtar Donetsk. And even though they dominated the game, they ended up losing. And the conventional wisdom had it that that kind of stuck with him because had they had they just even gotten a point, they would have been through. He was criticized last season for generally just focusing everything on the league where they had a chance to win it. It'll be an interesting dynamic this year because I don't think Chelsea see themselves as you know able to win to win the league, whereas last year that was clearly the case in say the hour they had a real shot. So I wonder if maybe he might go in and not prioritize the Europa League, but try to manage manage the two in such a way that you know they're firmly in the top four, but equally have a real go. Remember too, he's huge on chemistry and the way they play, and so he looks at it, especially given the fact that they um, that he only took over late or very very late uh, from from Antonio Conte. He wants to get as many minutes as possible. I think that's why we've seen so few changes. Well, all eyes start turning to Saturday evening, Chelsea versus Liverpool at Stamford Bridge. It's six wins out of six now for Jurgen Klopp's men after their victory over Southampton. And they actually play each other in the League Cup at Anfield on Wednesday night as well. Henry, you've already uh, alluded to the fact that Sari says Chelsea are behind Liverpool. What's different about Liverpool this year? Well, I mean, you look at the strength and depth. You know, obviously, they've got a fit storage, but uh, Shakiri played slightly sort of different, so sort of slightly more central role for him and he, he shows what a 
all the talent he is and, and what a bargain. What was Henry Dawood now? Was it 16, 17 million or something? I mean, it's a very reasonable price for a player of his calibre. What I like about Klopp is that everyone sort of looks at the sort of rock and roll and the empathy with the fans and what a, an emotional fit he is for, for Liverpool. And I get all that. But also, he's ruthless. I mean, he's looked at issues in the team and acted on it, whether it was defence, whether it was in goal. You know, you wouldn't cross this guy. I mean, he's utterly charming to meet, but there's something in his eyes that makes you realise, you know, like all the top managers, you know, he will he'll do anything to, to, to get that win, even if it means sort of, you know, cutting a stray goalkeeper adrift. So I, I like that about him. I think he is, I think Sarah's right. Liverpool probably are a year ahead. And I think it's going to be fascinating, particularly fascinating to see how Sarri's back four with David Luiz back in there with probably at least one fullback in Marcus Alonso, who has been fantastic at wing back. But I think he can be got at uh, defensively to see how uh, Mohamed Salah plays against him. So I think that is going to be an absolute fantastic tussle. Liverpool's brilliant attack, very fluid, very versatile, with strength also coming off the bench against Chelsea's back line, which, I, which can be got at. On one of our previous podcasts, uh, I forget who it was, Natalie, but it wasn't you or I. It was somebody <laughs> who made the argument that this front three, Salah, Firmino, and, uh, and Mane, aren't perhaps working as hard, or they don't look as if they're working as hard as, as they did last year, and, and they identified that as one of the changes. Now, Paul Joyce. It was, it was Joycey, mm. thank you. Now, I'm not... 100% in agreement on that. I mean, I think Salah was always going to regress. Mane, I think, has looked as sharp as ever to me. But what's your take, Henry? Is Have they slowed down a little bit? Do you see that? Do you agree with Joycey? Well, Joycey sees every game of theirs, probably every training session. Um, so he would absolutely know if, if there was a bit. I think that there possibly has been. Um, Salah, obviously, you know, post World Cup, arguably post Kiev in the, in the Champions League final, he's not been. He's, he's feeling his way back to uh, form. He's playing more with a smile on his face. You can see it at the weekend. So I think he'll step up a, you know, step up a gear. I think Firmino though has been terrific. I mean, he's put, I mean, he's missed one or two games, but when he played, Storm's playing the midfielder, some of the, the, the passes that he was making. I think his movement's been exceptional, and I, I could. I completely agree with you on, on Mane. I saw them in midweek. I thought he was he was electric. Um, so a- absolutely, I agree with that. But you know, you you look at the strengths in this this Liverpool team. You look at the the, the, the fullbacks, and maybe the the forwards are making are not having to make so many runs out wide because they've got two fullbacks who have got the sort of fitness and the enthusiasm and the license from Klopp to attack in Alexander Arnold and, and Robertson who are probably two of the best young fullbacks in, in the world at the moment. So I think that's, maybe that sort of slightly changed the sort of dynamic up front. But look, Joycey would know best, and I'm sure the statistics back him up, that they haven't necessarily been at their most. But look, you know, this is, this is after, a, this is after a, you know, a tournament, particularly for Salah. So look, I think if, uh, if Liverpool have had a dip up front and they're flying the way they are, then I think, well, you know, it's fairly ominous for the rest when the front three click into top gear. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. Subscribe now. It's just £1 a month for a three-month trial.
Elsewhere in the northwest, Manchester United were held to a one-all draw by Wolves at Old Trafford on Saturday. It's the second time this season that Wolves have held a Manchester club to a draw. And Burnley's Joe Hart said last week that Wolves were the best promoted club he's ever seen. Bill, is there any chance they could be sucked into a relegation battle? None, absolutely none. I mean, uh, even last season when they were a championship club, they they did really really well against Premier League sides. They drew with uh, Manchester City before losing on penalties. Uh, they won away to Southampton. They took Swansea to a replay, so they were obviously ready for it. And then they got ninety nine points in the championship, and they've come in and. Uh, looked completely at home. They've only lost one of the first six. That was against Leicester, where they didn't deserve to lose anyway. Um, they're not phased by playing the, the top clubs. They've pretty much matched Manchester City and Manchester United, uh, one at home, one away. Um, and they just look really well uh, organised as well. They've got great individual talent, but they it's perfectly set up. Um, uh, I liked Helder Costa on uh, the weekend. He was uh, really good on the right, really tricky. Gave uh, Luke Shaw a very hard time. Um, I think it's, no, you could quite easily see them finishing uh, seventh, I guess, is the kind of uh, the initial ceiling, really, uh, in the short term. But absolutely, they could do, they're not going to go down, certainly. And Gab, didn't you know something tactically different on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, I think this what they've been doing all season but it's something that is actually really difficult to do and I don't think anybody else in the Premier League does this Um, if you look at what formation they play off the ball it's very much um, it's very much a 5-4-1 where the the two wide forwards um, Jota and um, and and Helder Costa they drop all the way back Um, and and consequently the, the the wing backs become full backs, but the transition when they win the ball back and and they break and they're attacking, it, it turns into a full fledged three four three. Both full backs come up in midfield, and I think one of the things that and everybody talks about the transition and obviously you know people have different formations attacking and defending that part's not new, but it just happens so quickly, um, and I think that's that's really really remarkable. Um, the other thing that that does, you know, the two central midfielders, obviously Ruben Neves is on, he, he's on another level. I mean, he may well be the, arguably the best player outside the, the, the top six. Um, but Jean Moutinho, is, I think, is interesting because he, this is a guy who's obviously very skillful, he's got a million caps for, for Portugal, but, you know, he's not, he's not the most physical player. He's not the greatest athlete, never was the greatest athlete. He's older now. Um, but what he does have is a tremendous intelligence and quality on the ball. In this system, he's very rarely in a position where he needs to go and tire himself out physically. Part of that is because Ruben Neves does both sides of the game. Part of that is the three central defenders. Part of that is is this transition with other players working around him. And I think that is something that's really impressed me. You know, you can you can carry a guy like Moutinho, in a way that maybe, you know, another team couldn't carry all the time, a guy like Fabregas, for example. You know, you have to make allowances for players like that who give you that quality. Um, but for Moutinho to operate the way he does in this team is, is a credit to him and, and a credit to their setup. And everyone talks about all the money that's been spent by Wolves and the influence of a certain agent. Um, does Nuno Espirito Santo, Henry, get enough credit as the manager? 
I think he's increasingly now. I think your point's completely correct. Everyone was sort of talking about the recruitment and with the the agent effectively in the dugout. That was very unfair on you know, and I think he showed that last season, and he showed that this season as Gab was uh, was making the point about his, his tactical subtlety. But ultimately, it comes down to players and and the, and the sort of the, the chemistry and the dynamic between the players. You can see the understanding between Nevers and, and Moutinho. What were they um, build with Nevers? So twenty-one million quid between them. I know Moutinho's um, thirty-one, but I mean, it's, you know, it is a phenomenal bit of recruitment. Um, but just coming back to your first point about, uh, and Joe Hart's point about this is the best team. I mean, isn't it brilliant for everyone who's now in the championship? He's looking at how Wolves have gone up. You know, traditional club. Maybe, you know, they spent obviously a, a fair bit, particularly this summer. But actually, it's, it's, their, their buys have been pretty effective. So that's great for the old sort of proverbial dream factory of football that teams can rise up. And anyone who's been to, to, to Molyneux knows that you know, it's a special place. One club, cities, towns, you know, invariably are. And it's brilliant what they're doing. It's great for the Premier League that you've got a team like that. But I, but I don't think people are completely surprised because I think all the sort of, you know, you looked at all the pundits pre-season. I think everyone was predicting that Wolves would stay up because they've got quality, because the home record should, should help them. And because they've got a, a manager who seemed to sort of a strong hand on the tiller. And we're now realising, as, as Gab was saying, how tactically sophisticated he is. And obviously on the first podcast of the season, I raised the issue that I have a major problem with the conflict of interest that exists here. And there's no point looking at this in terms of the money spent by by Wolves because you have a situation where there's it's not so much the relationship with Mendez. Mendez does a lot of work for, 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 for different clubs and he's a lot of influence at a lot of clubs, but it's a situation where the 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 guy who who runs Fosun, who owns Wolves, Guo, uh, also owns 20% of uh, Mendez's business. He owns 20% of Justy Food uh, via another company. So this is the kind of conflict of interest that doesn't exist in, or shouldn't exist in any normal industry. Um, the fact that the Football League allowed it, I think, is neither here nor there. It really should not be allowed, not necessarily because it gives Wolves an advantage. And I don't think it's necessarily the reason why Wolves have done well. Um, they could have recruited the same way if Mendez didn't have this business relationship with, um, with with the ownership, but simply because in the long run, it sets a really dangerous precedent and it could be really harmful potentially to, to Wolves going forward or indeed any other club. And it comes down to whether, you know, what is the purpose of a football club? Um, but all that said, clearly, everybody's bouncing. Everybody's happy with this. So far, so good. The gap, are you surprised when you see how the Football League has stood up or failed to stand up to owners? Obviously, differing owners, different circumstances, but owners at Blackpool, owners at Charleston, owners at Blackburn Rovers. I mean, this is a, this is a long-running issue with weakness at the top of English football, and in this case, in, in the Football League. They haven't got the power, they haven't got the lawyers, they haven't got the manpower, and I think, most embarrassingly, they haven't got the will to take on owners who they really should be having an issue with. Let's return to, to the game at Old Trafford, of course, the draw. We've spoken a lot about Wolves, but what about Manchester United, and in particular, Alexis Sanchez, the highest paid player in the Premier League, if you do believe reports, substituted midway through the second half, yet to score this season, and probably hasn't done an awful lot 
since January. What, what do we make of Alexis Sanchez, Bill? Well, I think he's... Uh the style is just not suiting him really he's he's been used to say Chile Arsenal Barcelona quick paced attacks United it's just extremely slow very slow very frustrating to watch and arguably uh, uh, the wrong tactic especially at home to uh, at Old Trafford against a non-big six team but they as usual are very slow on Saturday painfully no running off the ball uh, which which you get at the other big six clubs particularly Manchester City and and for Sanchez he's very much a link player so I think it suits Pogba who's big and strong and individual and can you know uh, doesn't have to do things in a big hurry and probably Fellaini and Lukaku as well but just Sanchez the ball goes up to him on the left and whereas with Arsenal he'd be used to three teammates making good darting runs off the ball and have options there's just nothing there's Lukaku plodding a bit and then he just has to turn around and gets tackled so I'm I think he's just uh, not suited to United. Henry is Bill overly harsh? Well, no. I think if you talk to Manchester United fans, they would echo a lot of that. I mean, there's a there's a frustration with him in terms of his decision making, and as as Bill says, you know, that's partly because there aren't uh, individuals uh, making runs off him to, to to create space. And, but I mean, people you talk to at Manchester United just say, "What a good pro! How fantastic! He's absolutely flying in training." You always get good reports back about how good Sanchez is in the training. But on the, the match day, it, it's just not working out so far. I mean, to us, over the last few years at Arsenal, he was one of their few beacons in the darkness in terms of his commitment, in terms of his goals and his creativity. So look, they were, and we've seen it with, with Chile. I mean, there's a fantastic player in there. It's just a question, is is he best coming in off the, the, the left, where they do have other options there, Martial and, and Rashford, and Luke Shaw, obviously, is now bit fit and is playing and he's bombing down the left, which is good. Would you actually say, right, let's play him behind Lukaku and actually see if he can cause a lot of chaos there, which I think he, I think he will do. I think the encouraging thing about the last couple of weeks with Manchester United, less so at the weekend, although maybe it highlighted this, the fact that Salah has, has come in from, uh, from, from Portugal, teenager, very good English, Everyone in the club speaks so highly of him as a personal, as a professional, as he got over his injury. And I think maybe he will, okay, it's a right back, but maybe he will just sort of let the team breathe a little bit more because Valencia really needs to move on. I don't think he's a club captain. I don't think he's a captain. I don't think he's a, well, he's not a right back. He's more right wing. So I think the time now is for for Manchester United to look to, to the future. And maybe that will just sort of free up. You know, if you've got Luke Shaw and Darlow sort of bombing forward, then maybe that will create a little bit more space for the type of, of an individual like Sanchez. But Bill's definitely not being harsh. I think that Sanchez, I mean, maybe there's more focus on him because the wages that he's getting and, and how he made the move. And maybe Manchester City fans are maybe thinking they've sort of dodged the bullet because they, they thought he, he could have gone there. But he, a player of that quality should be producing more. His decision-making with his experience should be better. In the Times on Monday, you can read extracts from Kevin Keegan's new autobiography, My Life in Football. Matt Dickinson's been involved with this one and joins us now. And uh, Matt, Kevin Keegan, of course, a Newcastle legend, managed at the club twice, the last of which came in 2008 under Mike Ashley. And he hasn't really spoken about that period publicly before. And this does make for explosive reading. No, absolutely. It's it's the detail. I think that's just... um a killer with it. I mean, I th- the, the extract we've got in uh, Monday's uh, game 
talking about the, the deals for a couple of uh, of players, and as just say the excruciating detail of the club trying to a force you know, players on a manager, which isn't you know that's far from unheard, but it's the fact that they're trying to force uh, expensive, very costly players onto a manager with actually no intention that they'd ever actually you know play in the shirt. Effectively, they're 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 doing these deals for a bit of uh, what Kevin Keegan calls back scratching of a couple of South American agents. It's just excruciating reading of a sort of cowboy football club, um, squandering, squandering money, completely undermining a manager and just calling into question, well, the, the operation. And as Keegan says, even calling into question whether the FA should be looking at a deal like this. Now, it's, it's remarkably detailed and well-sourced. And I assume that with all the love in the world for Kevin Keegan, I'm assuming the reason he, he knows all the details here and, and remembers them is because obviously he had a he had a very public um, case against the club, which which he ultimately won and was was vindicated. And he must have had all the all the paperwork and the affidavits that go with it, because otherwise this stuff would have never got past the lawyers, right? Absolutely. I mean, he went to a tribunal, and um, that got very grisly, and an awful lot was documented through that tribunal, as you say. Um, that's that's where he's. Uh, He's wartertime, and he won that case hands down, as he writes in the book. Uh, the head of that uh, panel um, was incredibly critical of, of Newcastle, the way they handled it, and, and um, effectively you know, sort of misleading in, in various different ways, and, and Keegan won hands down. And it's, so it's partly the sort of legal side of it. It's partly the sort of grisly football side. But it's also, as ever with Keegan, a very emotional guy, which is why he's been, you know, one of the reasons he's been such a sort of compelling figure in English football, you know, him talking about the heartbreak of it, you know, that on Saturday we had that extract where he talked about the guy that Mike Ashley would call King Kev um, to his face and on text and stuff, having to smuggle himself back into the ground in almost disguise um, to, to, to go to a, uh, someone's leaving party because he felt that was the only way he'd get in and the only way he wanted to get in, because he, as he said, he didn't want to share oxygen with these people. And you think this is, you know, one of the great Tyneside heroes, one of the, you know, the great icons of, of a club wearing disguise to go back in. I mean, how farcical, you know, and, and how sad can you get? He also talks about a wall, I suppose, of incompetence. And, and I know you've already sort of suggested some of the transfer stories that, that he's talked about. But there were some of the misses that they made as well in terms of transfers. A Modric, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Newcastle fans will weep, I'm sure, when they heard about Modric sort of slipping through their fingers um, because Tony Jimenez, the ludicrous um, you know, sort of head of recruitment there, decided that he was too flimsy for um, for English football. Um, and, you know, what a <laughs> what a uh, blunder that's turned out to be. And, and it's and it's also just yeah, the involvement of, I mean, we've seen it, this is a consistent failure of the Ashley regime, um, which is why this stuff is still relevant today. It's not just ancient history. It's the people he employs around him. You know, we've got Tony Jimenez, who worked in a bit of property, um, as Keegan says, was, did a bit of stewarding at Chelsea, and that seems to be his you know, football knowledge. We've got you know, other guys, Derek Lambias, who I think worked in a, did some casino work before, and this still goes on. Ashley just employing people you know, in very senior roles at Newcastle who've just got no history in the game no understanding no knowledge you know nothing to nothing to bring um and that's that's the the tragedy for newcastle fans in reading this stuff is that this bad practice it, you know doesn't just relate to keegan's day it still goes on 
the the odd thing is, I mean, I'm not going to stick up for Ashley here, but there was also that period when they were signing all the French players and Graham Carr was like the genius and the god of football. And obviously this, this isn't in the Keegan era. So, I, I mean, I just wonder if, you know, all it takes for for people to judge is uh, – or, or for people to change your mind is you go and you win a few games. And, and, and then all of a sudden the scrutiny ab- uh, abates because, because look, you're, you're successful on the pitch. If Cisco had – you know, and Cisco wasn't a terrible player. I, you can argue whether they paid too much or whatever. But he could have turned into something and then all of a sudden, hey, look, it, everything would have been fine again. Yeah, you, you you know they get they got well whether it's luck or judgment they, they you know they got on as you say got on a, a little streak for a while where they tapped into a seam of French-based players for a, a little while, you know they've got uh, you know, Rafa Benitez a, a very competent manager and and they're you know should should be stable in the Premier League so you could say well what are expectations what about I think when you know the club um, you know the, the the fan base you know the potential there you know you understand where it's been where it could go again with with competent management <laughs> that's you know that's where expectations are not unreasonable I mean I do think yeah you know, some of the stuff that's been talked about in the last 10 20 years about you know Newcastle having a special way of football I think that can get overblown I mean no club has their sort of you know divine right or the heritage that makes it means that they must always play like Barcelona. I, you know, I thought some of the snobbishness about Sam Allardyce there was unfounded. But I think in just in terms of ambition and aspiration, I think Newcastle are entitled to sort of dream big and to believe they can be bigger than they've been under Mike Ashley. Time now to find out how we got on in our weekly predictions. I don't know why I sound so excited because I know it's all doom and gloom for me, Gab. That's right. We tried our hand at the Super Classico in Argentina. Boca and, uh, and River, tremendous. Natalie, you had Boca winning and yes. they were doing better, but it's the Super Classico. Things always go a little bit pear shaped. It certainly happened today. There was fighting between Boca players. There were, there were all sorts of stuff happened, as often happens. And, and River came away with a 2-0 win in La Bombonera. I had the draw, so no points for either one of us there. Yeah, uh, we went uh, into the championship for our next prediction. Uh, we both thought there'd be only one goal at the Riverside between Middlesbrough and Swansea. We were both wrong again, as there were no goals, as it turned into a goalless battle uh, between Borough and uh, Swansea. So no points there, Gab. So maybe we're getting better at this, or maybe the Premier League is just getting more predictable, but um, we both did rather well when it came to the top flight. We both predicted a 2-0 win for Arsenal over Everton and a one-all draw between Fulham and Watford. Oh, here it comes. Ah, but I went one step further. Mm-hmm. Natalie thought that Palace might beat Newcastle. The Wilfred-Zaha connection, that's why. I thought, you know, they always win with Zaha. Yeah, but not after Rafa came out and said, uh, oh, like, you know, Premier League should look into uh, Zaha as he asking for preferential treatment and whatnot. <laughs> At that point, you know, he was messing with his head. Once again, fact, Rafa won the mind games. And uh, Newcastle, of course, came away with that nil-nil victory. So that's three Premier League games where I predict the correct score, and that means I win this week again. I've raised the bar. What is it? 4-1 now? It's Producer 4-1. Charlie? Yeah. That's all right. It's a long season. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know that. 
It's now time for our quick hits. Here we go, Bill. Arsenal eventually dispatched Everton, as we both predicted. Were they worthy winners in the end? Um, from an attacking point of view, they uh, they certainly deserve the two goals. Could have had a few more. Aubameyang and Lacazette are linking really well. Uh, I like Lacazette. I mean, he's a, a really good link player, and he can he can finish. So I think he's he's got to play uh, permanently now. So yeah, and Ozil links in with them, and Ramsey and Torreira's come in doing okay, and Jacko oh, going forward, it's fine. But uh, at the back, uh, Everton had so many openings that really, so he's only halfway there, Emery. <laughs> Manchester City go to Cardiff without John Stones, Benjamin Mundy, David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne and they still win 5-0. Bill, are you terrified yet? Uh, well, Man City, uh, uh, for me, I think they're the best team uh, in the league by a distance still despite Liverpool's resurgence. The fact that uh, they can win 5-0 without David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne Two absolutely world-class creative players just shows it's the most important person at the club. I think is is uh, Guardiola. He set out the system, and whoever he plays fits into it. Ah, oh, very good. All within the time. Okay, he masterminded Leicester's win over Huddersfield. He's only twenty-one. He's English. No midfielder has scored more than him this season. In fact, no other Englishman has scored more than him, unless he's called Glenn. So why aren't we getting more excited about James Madison, Bill? Maybe because we think that it's impossible for a US president to become a great uh, Premier League player as well. Although there's one, one D in that medicine. He's also but, been dead for more than a Yeah, that's another <laughs> drawback. So but uh, probably more importantly, I guess the fact that he's only played his first Premier League game uh, last month. So, so, so you've got to give him a bit of time to, to show his consistency. But he's certainly showing a lot of confidence. He's not unfazed by playing against Liverpool when he's very good. So he's definitely one to watch. Hey, he- they paid a ton of money for him, too. Uh, mm. Was he this good? I, I don't watch the champion. Was he this good last season? I mean, did, did people look at him and be like, whoa, it's the next big thing? Well, there were good reports from Norwich. Uh, um, that's all I can say. Mm. No, he did very well. Although Did he, I did didn't he tear think... Brentford to shreds? No, see, I didn't think he would be as good as he no. is. But, um, hey, good for us. By the way, if you're a fan of Glenn Murray, and let's face it, who isn't? <laughs> um, the former... Was it Carolina Railhawks or Hammerheads or whatever poxy team in the A-League he once played for? <laughs> uh, one of the many reasons to love him. Ollie Kay has spent a substantial amount of time with him. Uh, I think they went to get their haircuts together and stuff. Oh. Uh, and they're Brazilians. So um, there's a big piece coming up. So uh, look forward to that. Everybody was waiting for Spurs to slip up again away to Brighton. But they didn't. They won 2-1 at the Amex with a bit of help from Glenn Murray as well, handling the ball yeah. in the wall. But is this enough to, to turn things around and so that people can now start respecting the Tottenham players and Poch's decisions? I think so. I think you have to bear in mind that they were also really good against Inter Milan as well. Very unlucky to lose, not just the fact that the two goals were late, but overall they, they, were, they played um, very well. They dominated the game uh, against the Inter now that they've beaten Brighton as another um, 2-1, this time in their favour. Harry Kane, I think, played really well in both games. It looks like he's turned the corner as well. Danny Rose is looking like he's back to his best. So, um, yes, turn it, uh, we can respect Tottenham. OK, Gav, it's now time for one for you. Uh, FIFA are holding the best awards tonight in London. Uh, who's going to win? Salah, Modric or some guy called Ronaldo? <sighs> Award seasons I've written so often about how absolutely silly this is and 
we shouldn't take this too seriously. Um, my guess is that unlike with the UEFA award, which was voted on by journalists who like to be a bit hipsterish and uh, and and managers of the Europa League and Champions League teams who uh, who maybe say, hey, why don't we give somebody else a shot? I think it's going to be Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, it's always fun afterwards. I invite you to do this if you're bored. Go on the FIFA website and see who everybody voted for. You see a lot of familiar names, and it is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Starting from the fact that Ronaldo never puts Messi in his top three, and Messi never puts Ronaldo in his top three. <laughs> Nobody actually believes, right, that Ronaldo doesn't think that Messi's one of the top three players in the world, or that right. Messi doesn't think that mm. Ronaldo's one of the top three players in the mm-hmm. world. So if they don't take it seriously, why should the rest of us? Natalie, one for you. My Twitter timeline was clogged up on Saturday night by people talking about some guy called John McGinn. I do know who John McGinn is. (laughs) And it was also helped greatly by the fact that everybody and their mother sent the video of what he actually did. But please explain and tell us more about this man. With pleasure. Another EFL mention. Hooray for us. Uh, There quite simply isn't a point in holding a goal of season competition anymore, as we already have a winner. Uh, McGinn... Well, it was a blistering volley at Villa Park. It simply had the wow factor, I think it's fair to say. The ball dropped to him outside the box. Uh, He perfectly caught it on his left foot and then volleyed it back with spin. And it looked like it was going to miss the goal, but somehow it bent back in and went right into the top corner. I guess the only shame for McGinn and Villa is that they actually didn't win and Sheffield Wednesday went on to win the game. But yeah, McGinn uh, left Scotland bit of a sort of a coup for Villa because Celtic had been interested in him but he chose to, to come down to, to Villa Park and that's his first goal for Villa but as I say disappointing that they didn't win because obviously it was a fantastic goal but it was Sheffield Wednesday that came away with the three points. Good enough to get in the Brentford side? Oh don't be silly. All right. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many thanks to our excellent guests, Bill Edgar, Henry Winter, and of course, Matt Dickinson. Thanks to you for listening. Yeah, and do remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a month for a three-month trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. To clarify, when we say tablet, we mean like sort of your your iPad or similar (laughs) device. We don't actually mean the kind of tablet that you know Moses used to when he came down from the mountain with the uh, yes. Ten Commandments no, right yeah no, it has to actually be some sort of electronic uh, device ideally connected to either <laughs> Wi-Fi or a 4G signal uh, we're gonna be back on Thursday looking ahead to another action-packed Premier League weekend and maybe a little smidge of League Cup too what do you think oh I think so the game is brought to you by the Times for more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.